Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And while I was tempted to play another of the Planque Norte lectures today, I thought that it would probably be best to wrap up this little Terence McKenna workshop that I started playing back in podcast number 416. As you'll recall, this workshop took place in February of 1992, and it began on a Friday evening. Well, we've now heard the Friday night talk, as well as everything on Saturday, up to where he began a four-hour walkthrough of his TimeWave software. And if you've been with us for a while, you already know that, except for the rare case, I think that we've probably heard enough about that faded theory. But uh, I should also warn you that early on in this talk, Terence tells us that in La Chirera, he became what he called a kind of alien ambassador for the mushroom, or perhaps for the other itself. He really wasn't too clear. But this is precisely the same story, uh, even though it's much abbreviated from an earlier telling that I played. But it's the same story, nonetheless, that some of our fellow saloners have taken to be a form of code that Terrence was using to let us know that he had actually become an agent of the CIA. Well, <laughs> I guess if you eat enough mushrooms that you can uh, maybe get that meaning out of what he says, but you'll have to be the judge of that for yourself. But wait, there's more. I most certainly don't want any lovers of conspiracy theories, both uh, real and imagined, to be let down. Personally, I think it's uh, kind of fun to come up with a new cockamamie theory once in a while, just to see how far along we can string somebody before they figure out we're pulling their leg. So, there's a new conspiracy theory that I'd like to say that uh, I invented on my own, but in truth, I've actually heard this one floated before. Anyway, I'm not going to be a spoiler, but in about 39 minutes, you're going to hear someone ask Terrence what he was going to do if nothing monumental happened at the end of 2012. And as I said, I won't be a spoiler here, but when you hear his answer, you'll know what I'm talking about, and if you want to help, you can uh, help me spread a new McKenna myth, uh, <laughs> but one that we make up ourselves. And uh, now let's tune in to Terence's Sunday morning session, which he begins as he always did the final session of a workshop, tying up loose ends. So is there unfinished business from uh, from last night? Yeah. Uh, was the voice that was directing you on the time wave stuff, is this something that's under the influence you hear this voice, or it's just your natural, you just hear this voice whenever? Well, it's sort of... You know, we talked last night about Dennis had this notion that he could bond these molecules in permanently. And, um, you know, everybody gets, you only get to be one person, so it's very hard to know what it's like to stand in someone else's shoes. But uh, going into that experience in the Amazon, I was a fairly disorganized I don't think I had a very bright future, actually. And and I spent my last dime to get in there. So there was essentially, I'd spent my, it was some kind of heart of darkness thing where I was just pulling out all the plugs and sinking deeper and deeper. And uh, since then, uh, my life has the character of pure science fiction. I mean, it's, I sort of became the alien ambassador 
and uh, was given a sinecure and appointed to then, you know, uh, mediate between the other and a certain kind of person in a certain kind of society. So uh, the weirdness never leaves me to answer your question. But the, in a sense, this idea is completed now. Um, I mean, there are always unanswered questions, but the f- complete metaphor is there. The, the mystery, I think, is... Uh, well, it has two sides. It has an, a profound side and an absurd side. The profound side is, uh, you know, is the world tidally locked with an extra-dimensional object of some sort that has sucked an animal species into history and is, you know, uh, revealing itself through the transformation of our flesh and machines? Or, and if not, on this schedule of 2012 and so forth, then what does this idea exist for? Is it just simply that I have a peculiar pathology married to a certain amount of charisma, so instead of being locked up and dragged away, I can turn it into a marketable product uh, in a very marginal way that allows me to keep paying my phone bill and stuff like that? Is that what it is? Notice that the idea is not designed to last... It's designed to auto-destruct one way or the other in 2012. So this whole ideological vision has written all over it, perishable, apply immediately, (laughs) do not use after December 22nd, 2012 AD. So um, I don't really understand uh, much about what's going on. It seems to me there are levels and levels and veils and veils. Uh, It puzzles me that life seems to have become some kind of story. It's much more a literary construct than it is the product of the stochastic motions of atoms under the impingement of the four basic forces of physics. It, everything appears to me to be authored in some strange way. And I wonder if this is not, you know, the spreading assumption of the psychedelic illusion, delusion, revelation that life is in fact art in some very profound way. And then, uh, you know, being somehow fated to literature and the spoken and written word, I wonder, uh, you know, if this is a novel, if this is a construct of artifice, well then it behooves each one of us to ask the question, who am I in the plot? Who am I in the context of the story? I mean, maybe it's your story, the Shlomo Ekbach story, you know? Or maybe you exist to draw the bath for Milady on page 220 and then bow your way out of the room never to be heard of again in the story, you know? 
that wonderful line in uh, Prufrock, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be, am an attendant lord, will do to start a scene, swell a procession, advise the prince, careful, obtuse, meticulous, at times a bit ridiculous. Anyway, are you that person or are you Prince Hamlet? And then the question becomes, um, if, the, if you, the character in this literary construct, are slowly becoming aware that it's a literary construct, then is that part of the plot? Is this a story about uh, a sort of Pirandello-esque exposition of the levels of personality as we rise into awareness that we are caged by artifice? Or are you getting out from under the control of the author? I I sort of think that... uh, Well, one thing that I've sort of discovered as my career has gone through its circuitous and glacial advancement is that um, as you make your way into what are called the corridors of power, you discover they're remarkably uncrowded and there are no waiting lines at the water fountains. Uh, There doesn't seem to be anybody really running the show (laughs) above the level which just makes sure that UPS delivers on time. (laughs) Above there, where you would think there would be, you know, in the captain's tower, uh, there's a kind of eerie emptiness. And I think that means that um, one can aspire upward in this matter of taking a little bit more control of the plot and that the the goal is not so much to um, advance your character act out your character and by you know brilliant marriages or daring military campaigns or feats of investment genius to somehow begin to take over the stage um, this isn't the way to move the evolution of the personality. The way to move the evolution of the personality is toward empathy and eventual assimilation of the viewpoint of the author. The author is the one who is in charge of the pattern and has some kind of a vision, which if the author knows what she or he is doing... Is being this is all being woven toward a hierophany, a catharsis that uh, you know illuminates, educates, leaves us in a better place. And I think the the payoff on this is if you become the author, the author is sort of in the position of a programmer. The author can uh, save or destroy any character. So if you become the author, you can write an ending that will save your character from the destruction that was inevitably built into it for you to get into this mess in the first place. You see? So it's... uh, it's, um, Now, what lies behind such raving as this? (laughs) 
can this coffee really be that strong? when you were in the jungle and Dennis had his 14-day psychotic episode or whatever it was, did he take the same drug that you did? Did you both do the same thing? Well, after, very shortly after we got into it, he didn't do any drugs. Um, because it was perfectly clear that he had no need of them. <laughs> the, the, the way it worked was we, we had a series of mushroom trips. Well, we had walked all this way through the jungle. And later I had occasion to walk that trail again, 110 clicks. And I, it was so difficult the second time that I had to face the fact that the first time we had actually had like wings on our feet or something. We accomplished an impossible physical feat without even noticing that we were doing it. I mean, and then when we got there, we had a series of mushroom trips, and on the third mushroom trip, um, we were talking in the hut it was in the middle of the night and he was uh, saying how he regretted that he hadn't been able to reach our father by telephone before he left for Colombia because he hadn't been able to really say goodbye properly and he was you know this kind of unsettled trip and uh, and we were all sitting in hammocks in darkness and uh, you could hear a, a, a Witoto walking on the trail because his transistor radio was on. <laughs> you, you always know when an Amazon Indian is nearby because uh, they're tuned to... Uh, <clears throat> anyway. So, not El Paso. But <laughs> so, so uh, we could hear this Indian with his transistor radio winding up the trail toward us uh, I remember it was an ad for Costeña, la cerveza más mejor de Colombia. <laughs> and, uh, and then as it came and faded, then Dennis uh, made this very strange noise, which was like a metallic... Um, well, a very strange noise. And and it was like that was really for him the moment. It came in a moment. And then we talked and he was agitated all night long and he kept try- wanting to go down the hill to where these other people were sleeping. And it was... And by morning, he was saying, you know what we could do with this? And then he just laid out this whole theory of molecular canceling and molecular intercalation. And, uh, but drugs had a surprisingly little amount to do with it once he caught, uh, once he caught the wave. So you never used a kuhe? Uh, I, we uh, went through this whole thing at La Chirera and left at the end of March. And the woman I was with and I stayed in Colombia another month. Everybody else went back. And we wrestled with it another month. And I was quite out of it, I think. 
I believe that she would give birth to the word itself. And I believe that it would be a little glass fiance bead that I had lost in Laos five years earlier. And when she began to develop a round sore on the top of her mouth that was exactly the size of this thing, then I realized that this little object would drop down onto her tongue someday soon and she would deliver it to me and that it would be the word made flesh. It would be the... Now are you alarmed? Now now do you begin to get the <laughs> drift that we've attempted to suppress so long? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I thought that this thing would essentially be um, a suitable second body a repository, I, I can't explain it. I mean, it was the Philosopher's Stone, it was everything. We were nuts, let's face it. But on the other hand, uh, there was uh, concentrically surrounding this whole thing, there were uh, immense synchronicities. I mean, the world around us seemed to be mad as well. It seemed like we were caught in the infundibulum of the concrescence or something. I mean, it's now what I would expect to happen just days or hours before the final closure on that wave that we looked at last night. But in our local domain, it seemed to be happening for for us then. And, and you know, we just... I was flaming. And it's ta- it took me years and years to dial it down so that it's even as friendly and packageable as it is in the present moment because for a long time it wasn't I mean it just drove people to the walls I mean they just said I don't know and I don't want to hear any and I've had it and call me when you're better you know <laughs> didn't you say though that there was a monamine oxidase inhibitor reaction well, we we did uh, brew uh, ayahuasca and take it, but I think having seen it, having lived with shamans since then, and having learned a lot, lot more about ayahuasca, I think the ayahuasca that we brewed was so weak as to be dismissible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You had mentioned the transformation of flesh and machinery. Um, with your understanding of shamanism, could you speak a little bit uh, to shape-shifting, their idea of shape-shifting, and how that may occur uh, as far as our, our end point here, our, our common end point, um, and also the computer technology that allows us to pattern these theories and perhaps bring us our own notion of authorship due to that and what that means for our own flesh transformation. Yes, well, in a way, I think these new technologies of information retrieval and uh, virtual realities and this sort of thing are simply the engineering mentality following along behind the shamanistic intent and putting it in place in silicon and glass and so forth and so on. Uh, The the persistent rumor in real off-river Amazon psychedelic shamanism is of this fluid, this stuff, which you can generate out of your body, 
under the influence of these uh, compounds that is this translinguistic matter, this mind, this spirit matter amalgam, which you literally give birth to out of your own body. In the fo- and and what the claim is that's made for this stuff is that it's like uh, it's like. Um, a collapse of ordinary geometry. There are stars inside this stuff. You can also look into it and see who stole the pig. You know, you can look into it and you can see how the fishing would be if you moved up river. It's a cybernetic trans-dimensional um, medium of some sort that is generated out of the the mysteries of the physiology of the human body. Well, God, this is so far off the beaten track from anything in the Western repertoire of conception that we just gape at the notion. And it's not... It's hard to get confirmation, but what they say... See, ayahuasca is all about group mindedness states of group mind it's also uh, when you analyze it chemically it's brain soup there's nothing in ayahuasca that isn't in your brain as we sit here it's made out of DMT and it's made out of beta carbolines like harmine and harmaline these things all occur naturally in your brain so uh in these off-river tribal situations, people take it all in a group, and when the boundaries dissolve, there is a group mind present that is able to make decisions. And uh, the, the, the shape-shifting and the mystery of... Who, who was it? We were just talking about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. This is the fallacy which haunts the Western mind. Uh, for the shaman, you know, attention gathers energy to itself. And so you can create a projection. So the mystery, I think the mystery of shamanism and the mystery of the psychedelic experience is a mystery of language. How can we... We are imprisoned by language and yet it should be our vehicle for liberation. And something has happened to our language through the phonetic alphabet, through the abuse that print has laid on to our thinking. You all probably know the ideas of Marshall McLuhan who felt that the linear quality of print created such notions as the citizen, uh, the industrial assembly line, the theory of interchangeable parts, uh, a whole bunch of conceptions which we take totally for granted are in fact adumbrations of the shift of sensory ratios caused by an unexamined acceptance of the printed word. The... You know, one thing probably worth talking about this morning is how do you get, is there hope 
in all of this. And some people find my rap very ambiguous because this meltdown point in 2012, which we slapdashedly sometimes refer to as the end of the world or uh, so forth, seems... uh, uh, Number one, irrational. Number two, despairing. Well, I don't think we can do too much about its irrationality. But I think uh, living in the light of the expectation of something like that orders your priorities. And in case you didn't notice, we all have our own mini-apocalypse built right in. Uh, You may miss the end of the world, but you definitely are going to have a front row seat for the end of your world. (laughs) So, uh, you know, is that any less profound? Are you such a selfless Democrat that you're more interested in the end of the world than the end of your world? I think it's a sort of light-hearted way to follow the Tibetans into the notion that life is a preparation for uh, the big D, although we don't have to think of it like that. We just say life is preparation for the inevitable collapse of the state vector into a biological hyperspace. I I heard a doctor on NPR last week and they were talking about cancer or some something anyway something where a lot of people die and he was saying uh, yes, well, it isn't easy to prepare people for the mortality experience. And, and the interviewer said, did I understand you to refer to death as the mortality experience? <laughs> I thought that maybe that's a, 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 good, um, a good idea. Uh, you know, kind of soften the blow. It's just one more experience. <laughs> Well, someone asked when we first went around to try and talk about the future. Uh, I don't know if I made the point uh, strongly enough. I I wasn't sure I felt it click. Um, And I think it's a strong one, and it's somewhat new with me. It's this idea that um, our... uh, that we represent some kind of singularity or that we announce the nearby presence of a singularity, that the evolution of life and cultural form and all that has, is clearly funneling toward something fairly unimaginable. I mean, I really don't think we can imagine our future, because when we try to project some little science fiction scenario of our future, we inevitably select a very small number of trends, and then we propagate them forward without integrating the forward propagation of everything else that is going to be happening simultaneously. Uh, You know, there are options such as nanotechnology, the building of super tiny machines, Uh, space migration was once an option this seems to be fading it seems to have been written off the menu by the powers that be as the Soviet Union cracks to pieces the human race's ability to leave this planet becomes a memory of ancient times 
I mean, we could not return to the moon in less than 15 years if we committed ourselves to it uh, tomorrow. So the space thing seems to have been taken off the agenda. There's nanotechnology. There's virtual reality. Uh, the present solution seems to be this enforced larval neoteny on the consuming blue-collar masses in the high-tech societies and triage through epidemic disease and mismanagement uh, in the third world. Uh, I, you know, it's a huge mix, this problem of saving the world or halting the forward thrust into catastrophe. Uh, I don't, uh, people say, well, why do you worry about saving the world? You just said it's going to end in 2012. Uh, I don't, I don't see that rap as any sort of permission for political irresponsibility or a lack of attention to world problems. If it's true, great, we're golden. If it's not true, and what a long shot it is, then we should still keep our eye on the ball with all of this stuff. Um, Somebody asked me once, they said, well, why you, you're always talking about saving the world. Why don't you ask the mushrooms how to save the world? And I, uh, I had never actually done that. And I, I did it recently. And it, the results were very interesting. I don't often get messages from the mushroom that I quake to bring into the public arena fearing an avalanche of political criticism. But uh, when I asked the mushroom how we could save the world, it hesitated approximately a third of a second. And then it said, every woman should bear only one natural child. An idea which had never occurred to me, actually which I now have looked into. I'm the father of two children, by the way. Um, this is a very interesting notion. The population of the earth would drop by 50% in 40 years without war, pogrom, displacement of populations, so forth and so on. The, another interesting thing about this suggestion from the mushroom is uh, it requires very little input, impact, or management by men, this suggestion. We, women have been powerless for millennia. Uh, now, apparently, here's a suggestion of how they could take great power without asking any man's permission. It's not quite accurate. It's not quite accurate. We'll it's get... actually practically not that accurate at all. Oh, well, tell me why. <laughs> well, because there's, there's two reasons, I would say. For, from a practical standpoint of being a woman who's still fertile, and one is no birth control is 100% effective. And yes. It, is that it? No, and the second one is, is that there are women in a lot of situations for economic reasons and political reasons where there are men. It's just like there's men all over the country sort of following abortion clinics. So I don't... To me, it doesn't seem accurate to say well, let me, totally in the hands of women. Let, let me try and convince you. Um, 
I took this simple suggestion, each woman should have one natural child, and I began looking into it. Uh, and uh, then I found a demographer who told me what I consider to be the second piece of this puzzle. And this I had never thought of. Uh, a, a woman who has a child... In, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan or Malibu or Berkeley, that child will have 800 to 1,000 times the negative impact on the caring capacity and resources of the earth of a child born to a woman in Bangladesh because of the difference in material culture, you see. Well, now that implies to me that if you wanted to make a social change in the area of the impact of the human population on the earth, then you should not preach contraception and birth control in the back streets of Dhaka and Lahore. You should preach it in Malibu and Berkeley and Manhattan. Now, the interesting thing about that is that these are the people, these women are the people you are most likely to convert to your point of view. They are college-educated, comfortable. Uh, all the resources of media are available to them. They are informed, intelligent, educated, healthy people, able to self-involved people. And so you can come to these women and you can say, here's the deal. Uh, we want you to follow a course of action which will increase your income, your disposable income, increase your leisure time, and propel you to the forefront of political heroism without contest. You see? Now, the use of resource by these populations, these women and their children, is so intense, the pyramid is so steep, that uh, your objections about birth control isn't effective and, and so forth. I'll bet you that if you could get 15% of the women in that population to commit themselves to this one natural child thing, that within 10 years there would be a measurable margin of relief on the extraction of world resources. So that here is a way to back away from the abyss without... Uh, you know, nightmarish reorganization of society, engineered diseases, third world triage, all this other stuff. And in the first 40 years, the population would fall by half. Then the next 40 years, it would fall by half again. Uh, the amount of wealth that would be accruing to those still alive everybody would, be, would see their standard of living rise quite naturally as a consequence of uh, the falling pressure on resources. Now, why is this, if it's such a great idea, not being done? It's, here's why, as far as I can figure out. It's because nobody can figure out how you make a buck in that situation. Well, yes, the method, how you achieve it, 
is debatable. I think man should cooperate with the effort, but the, the point is this one natural child per mother. Now, you see, um, the first argument you hear is that this is bad for children, and, and uh, that, uh, but the average American family is under three children. Most people have two children. Now, what's the history of having two children? Having two children has nothing to do with traditional family patterns or human child-rearing. Two children is a compromise between the natural family of six to eight and the demands of the Industrial Revolution and the guilt of Christian civilization. Two children is a horrible number of children to have. Mostly when you have two children, they fight like cats and dogs. And uh, it's just a, a horrible compromise between the way people used to have huge extended families and uh, the industrial revolution's uh, preference for you're having actually as few children as possible to make you a more efficient worker. Well, this is a, a peculiarly nuts and bolts suggestion. It's not airy-fairy at all. And yet, it would work. And it's the only other thing I've thought of besides mass dosing of the population with psilocybin that uh, seems to be a humane way to put the brakes on. Because we have real problems, folks. Don't... I mean, we are very insulated. But if you saw the data on the ozone hole last week, you know, they've been wailing about the ozone hole for five or six years, saying that it's disappearing at a rate of 4% a year. Well, then last week they announced that 40% of it disappeared in the last six months. This should have been, you know, a special meeting of the United Nations with all heads of state attending a complete emergency. Instead, you know, who Bill Clinton is screwing pushed it off the front page. I mean, this is the kind of shit-for-brains society that we're living in. So, uh, you know, we have real problems. And I have never heard a plan for pulling back from the abyss that had less coercion and less ideological freight to it than this one woman, one child thing. You see, it doesn't address politics. It addresses biology. It is overpopulation is what's driving us crazy. All other problems, toxic waste disposal, epidemic disease, resource extraction, degradation of the environment, collapse of the atmosphere, inability to satisfy third world aspirations, uh, all of these problems are population problems. And uh, capitalism doesn't want to talk about it because capitalism is not a human being. Capitalism is a Moloch, a god, a, a, a god of bloody sacrifice that sees human beings as ants. And the more ants there are, the more offerings there can be to Moloch. But this is not a good situation for us ants. And... Uh, you know, capitalism is a gun pointed at the head of global civilization. 
if you read the theoreticians of capitalism, Adam Smith and so forth, capitalism assumes an unlimited exploitable frontier. There is no such creature. So it has turned pathological. The only frontier now left to exploit is not a frontier in space, but a frontier in time. We steal the future from our children by plunging massively deeper and deeper into debt. But this frontier, the end, is in sight. And we, when we hit that wall, uh, you know, uh, we will join uh, the Eastern Bloc in a fundamental reappraisal of our situation. Democracy, I believe in. I mean, I think democracy is the psychedelic form of government because I don't see it as a product of rational thought. I see it as institutionalized anarchy. It's democracy is biology managed for human purposes. You know, it honors the biological unit. Uh, It takes the biological unit and gives it a vote. And that's a way for Mother Nature to then enter into human history. I mean, I'm fairly mystical about democracy, sort of like William Blake. Uh, what about the experiment in China on uh, when, when uh, um, child, one woman? Well, I think it was very coercive, and I think it shows that uh, it's, it's silly to preach it to poor women in rural populations. You want to preach it to educated urban women uh, who, who can evaluate it uh, from many different points of view. You don't want it to be coercive. I think if, the, if you tried to do it from the top down, meaning through these college-educated wealthy women first, that the visible benefit of it would make it uh, the very chic thing to do throughout the world. The reason people have large families in the third world is because they fear for their security in their old age. Uh, You must provide an alternative to that anxiety that is believable or they're not going to go for it, you know. Here as well, not just in the... Here as well, but to a somewhat lesser degree. But yes, you're right. <laughs> well, by going way out on a limb, I guess. Uh, people ask me, what'll you do if nothing happens in 2012? Well, by God-sent coincidence, my 65th birthday occurs a month before the date, so then I think I'll just steal away in disgrace and... <laughs> find myself a girl on an island who runs fish traps and disappear forever. <laughs> As to what I do in the meantime, uh, I don't, I should make it clear, you know, I don't believe this stuff. Uh, I, I, I find believing in these high-flown, complicated synthetic systems to come off sort of like pathology. Uh, so I entertain ideas, but I don't uh, give belief over. I'm very amazed by t- the time wave. It continuously surprises and delights me. And I don't know, very few people are obviously 
as into it as I am, but it's, it's proof enough as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's all I ever would have asked for. You know, it's a, it's a gem from the other. It's Aladdin's lamp. It's what I wanted and I got it. At one point in, in La Cerrera, naturally this question arose in our group. Why us? You know, why us? Why are the aliens revealing the unified field theory of space and time to us? And the mushroom just replied without hesitation, uh, because you don't believe in anything. You know, you are, and that apparently is what's required. Do you all know that Van Morrison song about no guru, no method, no teacher? Just you and me and nature in the garden, in the garden. I think that's actually where it's at. Uh, so what I do between now and 2012 is I, I'm a meme, a meme spreader, a meme replicator. A meme is a terrible thing to waste. A meme is a terrible <laughs> thing to waste. And the purpose of these teaching things is to turn you into fellow replicators of the meme. I mean, I see it all in the metaphors of molecular biology. You know, I have a new sequence of codons here, and I want to insert it into each one of you without error in copying, and then you should go forth and tell other people and copy it into their head, and this meme will spread because we cannot evolve faster than our language. The edge of being is the edge of meaning. And somehow we have to push the edge of meaning. We have to extend it. We have to, because uh, if we appear to be confronted by insoluble problems, it's because we have the wrong language for dealing with this problem. You know, you learn that with computers. Certain languages are good for certain kinds of problems. And uh, we have to constantly evolve uh, language and push it forward. And the way I think of the psychedelics is they are catalysts to the imagination. I mean, that's what they were back... A hundred thousand years ago, the imagination, which was just this glimmering, this iridescence on the surface of ape cognition, was under the influence of uh, the reciprocal feedback of self-reflection, you know, that is created by watching your own mind because it has suddenly become interesting, because it has suddenly been flooded by a psychoactive amine, that iridescence has been coaxed into language, art, architecture, music, poetry, the whole, the whole ball of wax. But now we know these things. It's no longer a, a sort of haphazard process. We can, by analyzing uh, uh, different kinds of cultures existing in the world today and uh, cultures that existed in the past, we can uncover, reveal, unravel the lost secret of our origins. 
And I think, you know, I haven't talked too much this weekend, but I'm very keen for the notion of what I call the archaic revival. And the archaic revival is this overarching metaphor that is the way for us to go to save our necks at this point. When a culture gets into trouble, instinctively what it does is it goes back through its own past until it finds a moment where things seem to make sense. And then it brings that moment forward into the present. As an ex- The perfect example is uh, when medieval Christianity no longer made sense to a m- major proportion or percentage of the people of Western Europe because of the rise of new kinds of classes, new forms of wealth, new information about the world outside Europe. When the medieval vision lost its power, the intellectuals of that time instinctively reached backwards into the past looking for a stable model. And finally they reached the golden age of Periclean Athens. And there they found Plato, Aristotle, the dramatists, so forth. And they created classicism. Now notice that we're talking here about the 1400s. Classicism was brought to birth in the 1400s, 2,000 years after the death of Plato. And we are still, to a tremendous degree, we are the children of this classical uh, revival, which we call the Renaissance. Our theories of law, our theories of government, our notion of justice, our notions of city planning, of architecture, of uh, all military planning and so forth and so on, are all drawn from classical Greek and Roman models that were brought back from the dead 500 years ago by a bunch of Italian uh, investment bankers who thought this was a good model to build on to hang their civilization on. And now uh, this has run out. The contradictions are too extreme. This classicism, I don't want to say it's failed, but it has just taken us as far as it can go. So now we again, we confront great existential confusion. We confront cultural values completely different from our own, such as rainforest aborigines and so forth. We confront the toxic legacy of modern science, the, the retreating species counts of the earth, the decaying atmosphere, all these things. So we must now reach far back into time for a new cultural model. We, Our crisis is so great that we have to reach back to uh, the high Paleolithic, to the moment immediately before the invention of agriculture and the uh, creation of the dominator ego. 
And I see, you know, people talk about the new age and the new paradigm and this and that. Well, it's larger than that. It's been going on throughout the 20th century. The discovery of the purification of mescaline in Berlin in 1897. Uh, Freud begins to publish uh, around the turn of the century. Jung, uh, they are discovering the primitive unconscious. They are revealing to Edvardian and Viennese ladies and gentlemen of great culture and breeding that they have inside them, you know, brawling, incestuous, violent, lust-driven animal natures. In other words, they are reintroducing an awareness of the primitive into this tremendously constipated, male-dominated, late 19th century, post-Victorian cultural milieu. And then, following hard upon them, the Impressionists in the 1880s giving way to analytical Cubism and all the, the... Cubism arose as a result of the fascination of a few artists with uh, primitive African masks. Picasso and his circle, and when they brought this stuff back to Paris in 1905 through 15, nobody had ever seen this kind of thing. And these guys began trying to deconstruct the pictorial space of people like Degas and those people into the pictorial space of the primitive mentality. Meanwhile, uh, uh, anthropologists were bringing in and Fraser published The Golden Bough, which laid before the European intellectual community this vast repository of integrated mythology. Uh, National Socialism surrealism, all of these things, some negative, some positive, are all aspects of this, the 20th century fascination and revivification of the primitive. Rock and roll, uh, the rise of sexual permissiveness, uh, the rise of, uh, uh, you know, styles of dancing, which were not this you know, the minuet and so forth. All of this signals this fascination with the primitive, but at the center of it stand two phenomena or two integrated uh, phenomena. Uh, The personality of the shaman and the fact of the psychedelic experience. And we've come late to that. You know, the 1960s is when this theme was first announced for any large number of people. And I think, you know, that we have to deconstruct, consciously deconstruct, this constipated, classical, industrial, linear... A dominator civilization that we're trapped inside because it's a vehicle we can't steer. It's glued to the tracks which run right over the cliff. If we cannot alter the assumptions of this society, if the George Bushes and Helmut Kohls of this world are going to continue to run things, then, you know, head for the bunkers, folks, and pray because the bunkers aren't going to be any consolation. Yeah. I'm listening very closely to you for a few days. Um, And uh, I hear what you're saying here, and I'm trying to formulate a question. I guess my question is, and maybe it's a political question, um, because there's so many people 
here at this moment, although they recognize that not all is well in Dodge, um, you know, they're reasonably comfortable still. They have a certain amount of uh, self-image and wealth and personality invested in this terrible corrupt system. And by and large, they're the ones who are at the reins and control the resources. You know, how does the archaic revival be made attractive and seductive and pleasurable and aesthetic to these people especially? Not to mention, you know, the influx of sort of Latino economic refugees into the country who just want a television set, man. Yeah, well, this is a real problem that the third world people can only aspire to the example they've been given, and it's an example of consumerism and uh, and so forth. Uh, and it's a, may I just say? Yeah, well, go ahead. It's an example not only of consumerism, but of a certain freedom and liberation of human expressiveness and spirit that they perceive. You know, it's not all that people are fucked up. You know, they look at America and this consumer culture, and they see the good parts, you know. Well, I think that you can't reform human nature. So what we have to do then is dematerialize the culture in some way. And I I don't talk too much about this, because frankly, I haven't really got a clue as to how you would do that. I mean, I know there's nanotechnology and so forth and so on, but what we need to do is take the matter out of thingdom so that everybody can live in the Frank Lloyd Wright waterfall house. I mean, you it costs $9.95 and you buy it at the 7-Eleven and take it home and slap it on and you can live in it. Uh, so that's why I'm interested... That's why I, in spite of my nature boy thrust in most contexts, I'm very interested in virtual reality and the idea of making the imagination explicit or interiorizing the exterior world. I mean, one vision that I've had of a kind of future utopia is, uh, you know, it... It opens on a world which looks like our world of 10,000 years ago. I mean, people live tribally, they are physically perfect, they are naked, they want for nothing, but they appear to have no material culture whatsoever. Then when you shift your point of view so that you're inside one of these people's heads, you discover that when they close their eyes, there are menus hanging in space in front of them. And by uh, glancing at these menus with a certain intensity, they are able to make their way into a culture that is entirely three-dimensionally present for them, but which nowhere impinges on the world of three-dimensional space. It's sort of the idea that you could have the Vatican Library installed uh, optionally when you have dental work, you know, and then just by pushing your tongue over there, why uh, you could uh, view uh, the Fabrianos or whatever. Uh, I don't think this is that far-fetched. I mean, a lot of money is going toward this. Uh, uh, 
money can be made from this. And remember I was saying that we have to figure out, unless we're ready to, you know, hang the rascals, then we're going to have to figure out some way to make money out of saving the world so that capitalism can cease its rapacious destruction of things. And I think these entertainment technologies are the way to go. I think that what we should all be trading in in 15 or 20 years from now is ideas. And ideas should be worth more than anything. And uh, this is happening. I mean, I was impressed. At this. We, there was a virtual reality conference here last summer, and a number of people came from Fujitsu. And the Japanese are not dragging their ass on this stuff the way we are. They understand what it is. And they, Fujitsu has a research team of 30 people who work full-time on virtual reality. And their sampling, data sampling rates and their equipment was far superior to anything here. Um, the Japanese culture is an excellent model for this future that we're trying to move into because what the Japanese seem to understand that nobody else understands is they've had centuries of experience with limited resource management. And, you know, our style is, you know, cut it down, dig it out, and when it's gone, move on. And now we're at the end of our rope with that. We have to manage this thing like a spaceship, uh, limited resources. Yeah. Uh, isn't uh, uh, looking at, at the context of you know the, the purpose that the events, uh, a presumed purpose for the sequence of events or history or, or transformations? And, and technology and the evolution of technology being the driver that's now you know, allowing all of these things is being what else can you expect to have happened that you know with with that kind of power and with a, a monkey brain what else would it do than just what it's done that's right and uh, do you see this as um, as a not necessarily something to take apart to undo a wrong but as a necessary uh, intermediate or mediation toward uh, a future that is being created through these stresses that this technology has set up. Yeah, history is just a 25,000-year dash from the trees to the starship. And while it's going on, it's wild and woolly. But it only lasts like that. And then you're in the starship. It, because we are like bacteria or something in the shortness of our lifespan, to us, 25,000 years, you can get lost in the middle of that and you can't see either end. But from the point of view of a species, it's just instantaneous. Anyway, these are uh, the ravings of an unhinged mind. I, I, I noticed last week, speaking of unhinged minds, did any of you see Science News with the 
cover uh, Cretaceous catastrophe that shows an asteroid impacting the Earth. You know, this thing happened 65 million years ago. Uh, it's now pretty well confirmed that a, a very large object collided with the Earth and laid down a layer of iridium isotope uh, that is you can find in sedimentary material all over the world at a certain stratigraphic level. It's called the KT boundary, the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. 65 million years ago, everything on this planet larger than a chicken died. And uh, some people think in a single moment, in a single cataclysmic impact. But what was interesting about this Science News article was they were saying there is puzzling data on the KT boundary because it does appear that there was this immense impact and catastrophe. But what's peculiar is there appears to have been a major dieback of species underway before the impact. That in the million years preceding the impact, there was some kind of echo crisis on the planet. And then this asteroid struck. And I thought, it had never occurred to me before, I thought, well, two possibilities occurred to me. Is it possible, you know, the dinosaurs that we find are the lumbering, enormous ones, but it's always agreed that there were a vast number of small-boned, gray-seal dinosaurs that were much smaller. Is it possible that there was a breakout of intelligence in the uh, in the Saurian line, and that in as we were able to emerge in just under three million years, is it possible that there was an intelligent species of a reptilian sort that was actually uh, uh, evolving a technical civilization, which then t uh, caused this dieback of species? I mean, this had never occurred to me before, and then it was wiped out by this impact. Although whenever you have intelligent life in the presence of large explosions, a safe bet is that the intelligent life is responsible for the large explosions. So it may be that there was a war in heaven 60 million years ago. The other possibility which occurred to me second was... Uh, one scenario for solving our problem is a mass migration into the past that if we could, you know, we could literally dump this whole scene and uh, go a hundred million years into the past of the planet and set up there in a confined zone. If it were only 10,000 years deep, it would never show in any fossil record. It would just be, you know, this. if we held ourselves to a 10,000-year-wide window, that's such a brief period of time and so long ago that we would basically just appear to have disappeared. Anyway, I'm constantly churning through this stuff, trying to understand. I think this is a haunted planet, and we are a haunted species. Uh, this business of these asteroidal impacts, you see, as, a, as an aficionado of novelty, 
somebody who can project 500 million years on a computer screen and at 500 million years the only kind of novelty you're tracking is biological novelty the eben, the you know the the sudden punct- punctuated forward surges of evolution and so forth well every solid body in the solar system is heavily cratered some of these craters are planet smashers. Uh, there is uh, considerable and ever-increasing evidence that the cosmic neighborhood is fairly unstable. One of the scenarios that I've had to entertain in trying to understand the voice inside the mushroom, the time wave, the 2012 thing, and so forth and so on is, is it possible that biology is somehow um, prescient, that biology somehow exists in eternity and knows the fate of the planet, and that what we are is a desperate uh, strategy of escape, and that the planet actually can sense the possibility of a a complete life-destroying asteroidal impact. And so a a species, a bipedal monkey with binocular vision, has been led into the antechamber of nature's secrets in order to build machineries and unleash energies sufficient to either deflect that incoming object or flee the planet in in anticipation of it. I think life is tremendously tenacious and has an immense capacity to organize itself to meet any crisis provided it knows it's coming and uh, you know there are scars on this planet uh, enormous scars there's a scar a billion and a half years old on the Canadian shield that is twice the size of the lunar crater Copernicus Uh, this thing that came down 50,000 years ago out near Flagstaff, Arizona, that was a tiny object. It was something like 30 meters across. It was moving nine times the speed of a rifle bullet. It was six miles into the earth in the first second of impact. Everything within 800 miles died instantly. And this was a nothing burger, this thing. Uh, An object 500 meters across the planet would ring like a gong for 10,000 years. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing at the KT boundary, the thing which killed the dinosaurs, they now believe they have the impact point. Oh, in fact, this is interesting and it reflects on our psychedelic mix. They've searched the planet for the impact point of the KT killer, whatever it was, and uh, now they've located it, and ground zero is at a little town called Progreso on the northern coast of Yucatan. At the time of the impact, the entire area was a shallow ocean. But what I find eerie about the location of this impact point is 
65 million years afterwards on this exact spot a civilization will arise obsessed with the end of time and determined to give a date to it I mean this it's within 110 miles of Chichen Itzu it's near Zebel Chaltun it's right in the heart of classic Maya country so it's almost as though you know the the question that I would like to have you leave here with is uh, you know a new appreciation of how hard it is to figure out what is going on I mean what is going on it's very easy to smooth it all out and say you know that the Pentagon runs it all and so forth and so on but once you start digging I mean the world is a labyrinth a sponge of interconnected labyrinthine interstices, the weirdest connections, you know, who knew who and what they were doing about it. And then, you know, these, these reports that come in, you know, and some are false and some are true, but the sum total of it all is to paint a picture of excruciating weirdness. And uh, people are just not pushing the right buttons. I mean, I guarantee you, you take five dried grams of psilocybin in silent darkness in your own living room on a Saturday night, and, you know, Ferdinand Magellan, move over. Uh, you, you will see things no one has ever seen before, and no one will ever see again. I mean, and these things are real. They have existential validity. They have the power to uh, move hearts and change lives if we can but bring them back into the domain of, uh, of the group mind, of the tribal campfire. We are surrounded by oceans of alien beauty, alien intent, uh, bizarre ideas. I mean, I'm convinced that these things which the, which the tykes offer in the DMT holding pen are um, idea systems, ultimately. The time wave, which, you know, took me four years to create and requires computer assistance and all this stuff, it was just one of those things. I mean, they could, they have closets full of this stuff and they just pull it out and show it to you and take it away oh you like that try this how about this each one of these things you know stretches the monkey mind uh, to its limits Uh, I, I I am a rationalist and yet if you press into these weird zones it, it you can overcome what I call the trailer court syndrome, which is, you know, that nobody ever gets kidnapped by a flying saucer except people who live in trailer courts. (laughs) You can overcome that. You, with your BA in psychology and your friendship with Rollo May, you can be kidnapped by flying saucers. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Something about crop circles. You mentioned that earlier, and I know these guys said that they made the crop circles. Well, the crop circles are such fun. Uh, first of all, it's, it is a wonderful example of my contention that the world is made of language. 
because what the crop circle, whatever the crop circles are, what they are is they are uh, uh, glyphs of some sort. I mean, they are designed to be seen. It would be absurd to maintain that someone was trying not to be seen. So these crop circles are to be looked at. And then radiating out from the act of looking at them, reality ripples like uh, air above a desert highway. The UFO people who were just on the brink of seeking honest work suddenly, you know, this tremendous shot in the arm, everybody declares themselves a seriologist and moves to... uh, uh, I mean, nobody seems to think it's... Well, I I don't know how much time to spend on this. Uh, No one seems to think it's weird that all of these Earth Mysteries people in England, John Michel and so forth, that this tremendous mystery just happens to be within a three-hour drive of their front door. I mean, why isn't it happening in the steppes of Central Asia? Obviously, it seems to me, it is to be seen by the very people who would then offer an explanation of it. Rupert and I have spent a fair bit of time trying to understand the psychology behind the crop circles. And uh, here we have come up with two ideas, which I'll try out on you. The first thing to notice about the crop circles is that southern England is is peppered with military bases, of high security military bases, where nuclear weapons, cruise missiles, so forth and so on, it's all there. So now, we're asked to believe that the airspace of England is being nightly violated by an agency or agencies unseen and undetectable in the very area where these nuclear weapons are stored, and we're asked to believe that the Ministry of Defense is not concerned about this. That either means that the Ministry of Defense is falling down on their job, or they must know what's going on. Well, now Jacques Vallée is the person who said, who pioneered in the study of flying saucers. He said the way to understand flying saucers is don't ask who's inside or where do they come from. Ask what effect are they having? If you assume they are succeeding in what they want to do, then watch what they do and you will see what their purpose is. Okay, so what effect are the crop circles having? Well, what they have done is they are a magnet for the fringe establishment of the British Isles to come out of the woodwork and proclaim the imminence of some great event. And they have come more and more out on this limb. And uh, what I speculated to Rupert was that MI5, which is British intelligence, uh, is it's possible that they could actually view the New Age as a resurgence of paganism that threatens the Christian establishment of Anglican England. And so what they have done is they've created a disinformation 
program, they will lure all these people out onto this limb where they are all saying, you know, couldn't be done by human beings, absolutely beyond the power of science to explain. And then they will reveal a team of MI5 folks who say, you know, watch, we'll do it for world TV. You people are all flakes. You should never have gained the power in this society that you have. And now you do have to go find honest work. <laughs> those two guys who... Those two, yeah, they seemed like that. Well, so then we came up with a yet more elaborate theory, which I somewhat prefer. Um, the only country that has really taken an interest in these crop circles, other than the English themselves, are the Japanese. And this, this has gotten immense coverage in Japan, in the popular press. And um, when you go to these crop circles, the number of Japanese is astonishing because it has been written into all these tours, apparently, and, and it's a photographic subject, and it's very occurrent and so forth. So it's a, a, a big deal. So what I suggested to Rupert was uh, MITI, which is the Ministry of Trade and Industry, is obviously carrying on a clandestine project in the study of semiotics, in the study of the Western mind and how it relates to the manipulation of certain symbols, because they are in charge of marketing and advertising and uh, creating a marketing psychology in Japan. So what I think we're dealing with here is a ultra-clandestine team of ninja stem snappers <laughs> who pose as Japanese tourists and television crews and so forth, and then at the drop of a hat can flash into this zen stem-snapping mode and create these things, and the press that it generates and the uh, discussion provides a very deep index into the English mind. Notice how eerily appealing to the English mind this is. And it's possible that you can extend this to... Uh, uh, to the cattle mutilations of a few years ago in the Midwest because it, the, the relationship of cattle mutilations in the lonely western prairie under a crescent moon, the relationship of that image to the American mystique of the lonesome cowboy and the gunfight at the OK Corral and all that is eerily similar to the relationship of the English mind to its earth mysteries out there on the Salisbury Plain. So I think it's a, it's a, a, a human agency 
and that therefore it's some kind of a disinformation project. It's very interesting that these two guys came forward because it completely shifted the argument from this no human being could possibly do it to they couldn't have possibly done all of them. It was like a deep defensive mood and uh, I, I was amazed at the vehemence of people in England because I thought it was good fun and that you could talk to anybody about it and talk about the Ministry of Trade and Industry and MI5 and the, and people were like they were shocked at my lack of sensitivity to the emerging messages from the telluric depths of the suffering earth. Hey, maybe it's happening, but you know, I was raised in the tradition of Occam's razor, which says hypotheses should not be multiplied without necessity, and I saw no necessity of reaching out to that. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, uh, until near the end, when Terence got into his rap about the ninja stem snappers, <laughs> well, I was thinking that he was going to leave us on a real downer with all of his talk about asteroid impacts and things like that, which, of course, is uh, probably even more topical today than it was back in 1992 when this recording was made. But his tongue-in-cheek crop circle theories got him back to where, early on in this talk, he said... Uh, I don't... I should make it clear, you know, I don't believe this stuff. Of course, with what we now know about the crop circle phenomena, perhaps his wild theories are closer to the mark than he may have suspected himself. Now, uh, if you're new to us here in the salon, I should probably let you know why I didn't include all of Terence's detailed comments about his time wave theory. In fact, I've received a lot of comments about the fact that my previous podcast of this workshop seemed to have left Terence in mid-thought. Well, you're right about that, but the very next thing out of his mouth had to do with loading the time wave software on a computer. Now, when this talk was recorded in February of 1992, Terence was obviously still very enamored with his theory about novelty and time. Unfortunately, it led to a dead end, so to speak, when nothing of significance occurred on December 21, 2012. Since I've been doing these podcasts for over nine years now, and since in the early McKenna talks the time wave was discussed in great detail, I've decided that unless he says something that we haven't heard in an earlier podcast, that I should cut those sections out because, while they were just becoming somewhat repetitious. However, if you want to learn more about this interesting idea of his, you can go to our program notes blog, which you get to via psychedelicsalon.us, And in the right-hand sidebar, under the Categories section, there's an entry for the time wave where I think there's somewhere around six programs that cover it in more detail. Now, I should close right here since we've, again, gone a bit too long today, but there's one more thing that I want to do. A few minutes ago, we heard Terence give a somewhat detailed account of his version of a utopian society, where people live very close to nature, but instead of a consumerist society, most of the experiences uh, that are, well, I guess you'd say consumed, are to be virtual reality experiences that don't burden the environment as deeply as we're now doing. 
Well, I've always enjoyed listening to that little rap, but it also brings up another of our old but dearly departed friends to my mind. And that's Fraser Clark. In uh, the program notes, you can also learn more about Fraser and find links to some of his talks here in the salon. But what I want to mention right now is that Fraser and Terrence were also good friends, and in his lecture at Stanford University, Fraser retold this little tale of Terrence's, but he told it in his own way. And I'd like to play that short rap for you right now. Uh, I think McKenna talked about this a couple of years ago, Terrence McKenna, and I used it last year as kind of, what is the zippy vision of where we want to go to? What is the balance between technology and, or, and organic? Okay. Imagine a, a world in the future, a planet where there isn't one inch of concrete. It's covered in rainforest, completely 100% natural. A naked couple walking across a, across a clearing. Look pretty much like us, maybe a little bit hairier, but n- naked, yeah? They pause. She bends down, lifts the flower without breaking it and puts it in her mouth thereby making an electronic connection. Menus drop down in their eyes. They plug into a sort of global computerized brain. They go into a virtual reality super city. They make their deals. They go to college. They do, you know, they have all the, whatever they're doing. We have meetings in virtual reality. But in fact, we're all living as naked apes back in the jungle. In other words, the whole of technology has been inhaled into virtual reality There's no more concrete, no more physical buildings anywhere instead of being exhaled on the planet. Now, this, to me, this is a zippy vision because I love nature and I love the super city. The only thing I've got against the super city is that it's killing off the nature. So if somehow we could put that into virtual reality, into cyberspace, then we've cracked it. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.